0: All right, well, welcome to Mill City. My name's Ashish. I'm so excited to be with you this morning and to dive into the word together. Before we do that, uh, would you join me? Let's pray uh, to open our time to just center ourselves, and then we'll dive into our text together. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for the grace to be in this room today. Lord, as we sang, as the Spirit is moving over the water, Spirit, would you move over us? Holy Spirit, would you open up our ears to hear your voice? And as always, would you give us the courage to respond? Jesus, we thank you that your presence is here in this room. And we love you. Thank you that we get to do this together. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So as a middle school student, I had a sacred place when it came to recess. Now, this was a place where friendships were formed, where memories were made, where I became more of who I felt God created me to be. That place, the dodgeball courts. (laughs) Now, dodgeball, you either hated it or you loved it. And I was in the latter camp. I love dodgeball. But in middle school, dodgeball was about so much more than just winning. Dodgeball was about achieving recognition, honor, status. As a middle school student, status was everything, and dodgeball was my opportunity to prove to people that I was not just another homeschooler, but that I had athletic potential. (laughs) I was one of the cool kids. So every Tuesday, it's where you could find me. In fact, I got so good that people started to take my name and mash it up and started to call me the Ashashin. That is not a joke. I actually was called that. Now, here's actually an action shot of me playing dodgeball during a tournament. You can see the, like, movement. Wow. The uh, fashion in action there. Now, years after this in college, I was invited to help out with a youth event. And they invited me to play dodgeball. And I felt back at home. And so I started talking myself up to the middle school students. I was like, I'm pretty good at dodgeball. I'm pretty great. You want me on your team. And so they chose me first for their team. But what I failed to take into account was this thing called aging. Because as soon as the whistle blew, and I ran up to the line, I grabbed the ball, I took it back, and I threw it with all my strength at a seventh grader, I felt pain all the way up and down my arm. I had thrown out my arm. but. I had a reputation to uphold. I had my status to keep, and so I kept playing and playing. And the more I played, the less accurate I got. The more tired I felt, the more hurt I got. Trying to prove I was the greatest led to the Ashashan nursing a sore arm for the next few days. Now, As I've grown up, I've realized that the chase for status or recognition isn't unique to the dodgeball courts in middle school. In a world of celebrities and corporations of advertisements and social media we are inundated with the message that status is everything. We're driven to chase status in our jobs with the people that we choose to spend time with, with the house that we purchase, the neighborhood we move to, the achievement we're working towards, or the products we do or don't use. In this world it can often feel like we're in a race for greatness, a race for recognition, a race to leave the perfect legacy, a race just for admiration. In this race, every decision I make can become more about what other people think of that decision rather than me feeling at peace about that decision. Because the tricky thing with this race is that we can tie the results to our worth. I want to matter. I want what I do to matter. And so I strive for status. And I know I'm not the only one. Maybe you feel this tension in this race at work or in your social sphere. Maybe you feel this tension to race for greatness as you scroll online. Now, there is nothing wrong with prestige or recognition because God created us in his image and I believe placed in us a desire to pursue excellence. And I believe God can provide platforms and open doors for us to have incredible spaces of influence Places where the world would look and say, wow, they are doing great things. They have achieved greatness. But when status or greatness in the eyes of others becomes our only pursuit, I believe we can end up with a sore arm and an exhausted soul. It can be draining to keep climbing the corporate ladder. It can be overwhelming to keep all the social events and expectations straight. It can be stressful to keep curating our online or in-person appearance and we can almost pull a muscle in our neck as we're constantly looking around and checking where everyone else is in our families, in our neighborhoods, and even in our church. Now the desire for status or greatness is not unique to today. In fact, in our passage this morning, Jesus invites the disciples into a paradigm shift when it comes to understanding greatness. And as we read this passage together, I'd invite us to consider how we're invited into that paradigm shift as Jesus followers, and how this can practically shape how we participate in the kingdom, in the places where God has placed us. And so this morning, we're going to continue our conversation in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible or an app, you can turn there. We'll be in Mark chapter 9 this morning, and specifically, we'll begin with Mark chapter 30, or chapter 9, verse 30. Now, last week we talked about defining the kingdom of God. It's this theme that we see throughout the Old and the New Testament. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we talked about how we are talking about the sovereign reign and rule of God, which is breaking into our world. Now we see the kingdom of God breaking in where there's healing, where chaos gives way to peace, where there are glimpses of joy. These are moments where we catch that the kingdom of God is breaking in. Now, scholars talk about how the kingdom of God is already here, but not fully yet. That, yeah, the kingdom of God is breaking in, but we await the day when Jesus will come back and make all the wrong things right, where he will restore all things. But while we're here, in the middle of that kind of messy middle there, we wait, while we wait for Jesus to return, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to join God in bringing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. But participation in the kingdom is going to involve a few paradigm shifts because Jesus is a new kind of king of a new kind of kingdom. Jesus is not like the other human leaders of this world, and his kingdom is not like the other little kingdoms of this world. And so to participate in this kingdom, it's going to take a couple of paradigm shifts, and Jesus is about to lead his disciples through one of these paradigm shifts this morning. And so, For context, the disciples are coming off of a really embarrassing moment. They are unable to cast out a demon. And so after that story, we begin in verse 30. And so here's what Mark says. Mark says, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Now, this is the second time that Jesus actually makes this proclamation. I'm going to die, but then I'm going to rise again. And the first time in chapter 8, we see the disciple Peter rebuke Jesus. He says, Jesus, that's not going to happen. But the second time, the disciples remain silent. When, When Jesus proclaims this, it's understandable that they're confused. I mean, they know that Jesus is the Messiah, but in their minds, the Messiah is supposed to be this political and military hero. The Messiah was the epitome of greatness, and now this rabbi, this teacher that they respect is telling them that he is going to be handed into the hands of men to be killed. That's such a powerless statement for the Messiah to make. We have to understand that as the disciples are moving from town to town, their concept of the Messiah is being deconstructed and reconstructed as Jesus is teaching. And so it's understandable that the disciples were confused and afraid, not knowing what to ask Jesus. So instead of asking Jesus about this, they decide to have another conversation. And so we'll continue in verse 33. It says, They came to Capernaum. Now when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? Tough question. But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So Jesus is over here talking about how he's going to die and rise again. And the disciples are asking, who is the greatest? Now, before we pile on the criticism to these disciples, we have to realize that this would have been a completely valid conversation for them. In an honor-shame culture, the culture that the first century culture was, status meant everything. And your greatness was tied to your family, to your money, to your vocation, to your ethnicity, to the region that you grew up in or came from, to the rabbi or teacher that you followed. And the goal of life in the first century was to accumulate more greatness, to gain more honor, to grow in status, to climb the ladder of success. Now in their minds, the disciples were winning this race for greatness. I mean, they weren't only following a famous teacher, but this was the Messiah. The king they had been waiting for, following him, had vaulted them in their minds from dreams of how many fish am I going to catch tomorrow to how am I going to serve in the royal court. It was the normal default question for them to ask who was the greatest. In fact, in chapter 8, Jesus talks about how this default way of understanding is the way that the Pharisees and Herod think about greatness. Where the Pharisees and Herod are so concerned with who's in the inner circle and who's out. How can I accumulate more greatness at the expense of those around me? But remember, Jesus is a new kind of king of a new kind of kingdom. And so Jesus invites them out of this default way of thinking and into a paradigm shift when it comes to greatness. Jesus begins to teach them. And I love how Jesus doesn't rebuke them in the moment. it just sits down and begins to teach them. Jesus says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He takes their definition of greatness and he flips it on its head. It's not about jockeying for a prime position at the top, but it's actually about taking a step back and taking care of each other. It's like Jesus is saying, disciples, you're asking the wrong question. This is not about how can I be the greatest But how can I use my position to always think about and serve those around me? And I believe this highlights such an important truth about this paradigm shift, about greatness in the kingdom of God. It's that in the kingdom of God, greatness is about choosing to serve over chasing status. Another way to say this is greatness is about service, not status. Now, there's nothing wrong with achieving great things. Because I know many of us in this room are doing amazing things. And I believe God cheers us on as we use those gifts he's given us to accomplish these things. But if our sole priority is on climbing the ladder of success, we've missed the point. Jesus invited the disciples and us to think about how we can prioritize serving others. Whether we get the promotion or not. Whether we're on the other side of a fulfilled dream or whether we are standing in the middle waiting for next steps. How can we use every space we're in to serve those around us? To see them flourish and thrive. To see them empowered and pointed to the incredible love of Jesus. Jesus takes greatness and flips it on its head. Greatness is about choosing to serve over chasing status. But then Jesus goes one step further to kind of jolt the disciples out of this default way of thinking. It says in verse 36 that he took a child in his arms. Now, most likely, this was a child of the host of the house, probably running around, and Jesus said, Hey, come on over and come into this teaching here. And so Jesus takes this child, puts this child on his lap, and says, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Now, the first century culture viewed children differently than how we might view children nowadays. Outside of a normal familial affection of, Oh, this is my kid, I I love this kid. When it came to society at large, Kids were viewed as insignificant or tolerated at best. I mean, if you thought about this when it comes to an honor-shame culture, kids really had no power. They had very few rights. They really weren't contributing to society. Kids were really low on this social ladder. But I love how Jesus is sitting down when he welcomes this child. When I started working at Mill City, I started working in the family life ministry here at Mill City. And one of my mentors told me that when I speak to a child, I actually need to get down on their level. When I kneel and look at a child, I'm able to look at them eye to eye. They're valued because I have lowered my position and I'm talking to them eye to eye. In the same way, Jesus invites the disciples into this posture and position. I love what one commentator writes, that in the first century, welcoming a little child meant breaking social norms. Lowering oneself to accept another of a lower status and thereby risking one's own position of power and prestige. Now the disciples were having a hard time serving each other. Now Jesus challenges them to risk their own position to serve those who wouldn't be able to serve them. Serve those who wouldn't boost their own status. And Jesus says, this is crucial to following me. In fact, welcoming a child in my name was like welcoming Jesus himself. I love this phrase that Jesus uses, in my name. It's used throughout the Gospel of Mark to talk about the authority of Jesus. When Jesus gave the disciples authority in his name, he didn't give them authority to accrue greatness or climb the social ladder. Jesus gave the disciples authority to follow his example and lay down their lives for those around them. To serve those that Jesus had brought into their path. Especially those who were marginalized, vulnerable, or who couldn't pay them back. In the kingdom of God, greatness means choosing to serve over chasing status. But Jesus has one more thing to teach them when it comes to this paradigm shift. And it begins in verse 38. It begins actually with a question that one of the disciples asked. And so we're going to continue in verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Now it's like the disciples are saying, okay, yeah, 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 the servant of all is great, but who's on the inner circle? Who's on the inside? Who's on the outside? Now a detail that adds depth to this question is the disciples' inability to drive out a demon earlier in this chapter. As I read this, I wonder if John's asking this question from a place of shame. I mean, if someone else was able to drive out a demon in Jesus' name, but I'm unable to, does that mean I'm going to be replaced or kicked out of this inner circle? To be honest, in my own faith walk, I've fallen into this insecure thinking, this lie that the enemy introduces, that if I stop doing great things or if I'm not doing great enough things, Jesus is going to relegate me to the sidelines, that I'm done. And I often find myself comparing myself against people on Instagram, people that I don't even know. And this insecure thinking makes its way into my life. And I ask, Jesus, am I on the inner circle? Or am I on the outside? Or maybe John is asking this question from a place of comparison. Jesus, what is the in way? What is the correct way to do things? I mean, clearly this other person is doing things differently, so they must have it wrong. And I think we can fall into this mindset as well, of comparison and competition, especially as Jesus followers. I mean, that church worships differently. Those people use different concepts. They're too big, they're too small, they use too many lights, they use too little fog, they're singing the wrong music, right? We hear these things. Jesus, what is the in way, what is the correct way to do things? What? We're in the inner circle, right? But Jesus answers this competitive mindset with an illustration of compassion. First, he tells the disciples to not stop them. If they're doing things in his name, that means they're doing things in Jesus' authority. So let them keep doing what they're doing. But then Jesus brings up a simple act of compassion. He talks about giving a cup of water. I like to picture Jesus looking at the child in the room. Bringing a cup of water was something even the most innocent or vulnerable could do. You don't have to be great to serve someone water. Jesus said, even if they give you a cup of water in my name, they will certainly not lose their reward. Even the small act of compassion was a sign that this person was a part of the kingdom, that this person was empowered by Jesus to participate in the kingdom. It wasn't just for the inner circle. Now, the default in that culture and in our culture is to put people into groups and then determine who's in or out, who's got it right or who's got it wrong. But Jesus' response here signals another shift when it comes to looking at greatness. And it's that in the kingdom of God, greatness is about compassion, not competition. It's about compassion. Now, I'm a competitor. And this really comes out when I play board games, especially when I play Settlers of Catan. I don't know if anyone's played that. Now, if you haven't played Catan, just make sure you plan 20 minutes of a cool-down period so tensions can settle after you get done... uh, Fighting with each other. Now, the goal of the game is to accumulate and trade for as many resources as possible to earn victory points. And whoever earns 10 victory points the fastest, they're the ones that win the game. Now, I will do whatever it takes to win. And my family actually warns people when they play with me for the first time. They say, Ashish is so manipulative when he plays board games. And I take offense at that. And I tell them, it's not manipulation, it's just good strategy. But I'm sorry that my strategy causes you to lose. That's, that's what I tell them. Now, when we talk about compassion versus competition, I'm not saying don't compete in board games. But when we view others through a lens of competition, we see a scarcity of resources. My sheep, my wheat. When I view someone through competition, thank you, some people just got it there. When I view someone through a lens of competition, I see an opponent. I see a rival. I see someone I need to beat. Viewing things through a lens of competition makes the emphasis winning because the emphasis is on me. When the disciples saw another person casting out demons, they saw a scarcity of resources. The authority of Jesus, there's not enough to go around. They saw an opponent. They saw a rival. They saw someone they needed to keep out. You're not one of us. This is my place. I'm not giving it up. And man, it's so easy to fall into that way of thinking. It's my friend group. It's my hobby. It's my neighborhood. It's my church. This is my place. I'm not giving it up. Continually competing and comparing with others traps us in bitterness and fear because the perspective, the focus is on me. Jesus empowers us in his name to look through a lens of compassion and when we look through this lens we see that we serve an abundant God we see the people around us as humans made in God's image and instead of someone we need to beat we see someone we're able to join someone we're able to learn from someone we're able to serve as well as be served by that person A lens of compassion points the emphasis towards that person and on joining Jesus' transforming love that is moving towards that person. It points it away from me and towards those around us that God's placed in our lives. Notice that when John asks this question, he doesn't even consider the person that was just set free from being possessed. He's so concerned with who is in or who is out that he missed where the kingdom of God was breaking through. That there is a man who's walking around that city now free and walking in the freedom and joy that God's presence brings. John just misses that. Jesus invites his disciples and us into this paradigm shift on greatness. That in a world where the default definition for greatness is about status and competition, In the kingdom of God, greatness is defined by service and compassion. Greatness is not about status and competition. It's about service and compassion. Can you imagine if Jesus' followers actually prioritized service and compassion? Can you imagine if service and compassion were the first words people thought of when they thought of the church? I believe that would change our lives. And I know that that would change our city. But there's one phrase that's really important in this whole conversation and it's come up a couple of times. When it comes to service and compassion, the disciples are only able to do this in the name of Jesus. Did you notice how that phrase was littered throughout this passage? Welcome children in the name of Jesus. Give a cup of water in the name of Jesus. Even drive out demons in the name of Jesus. When we look at ways to serve and live with compassion... We need to daily receive Jesus' love and compassion for us first. Because if we don't start with Jesus' love, then service can quickly become about raising our own status, about feeling good about myself, about earning my place in God's kingdom. It can quickly become more about doing more for God's approval instead of remembering that it's by grace that we've been saved, not by works so that we don't. When we first received Jesus' love, I believe we're able to remember that our worth isn't based on what we achieve, but it's based on the deep love of Jesus. Our worth isn't based on how much we serve, but it's based on a God who served us. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are welcomed into the family of God as children. The disciple John, the same one who was asking the question, would later write in one of his letters to the church, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And then he ends with this exclamation, and that is what we are. Not children who are tolerated, but children who are heirs along with Jesus of the kingdom that is here and that is to come. We remember this when we start by receiving Jesus' love and compassion for us. Second, when we receive Jesus' love, we are empowered by the Spirit to serve and show compassion even towards those we might deeply disagree with or resent. I don't know about you, but so often my compassion and my desire to serve runs out when I'm doing it on my own strength. But when we're empowered by Jesus, we're able to lean into Jesus' strength to love those that we care about, but even to love those that we deeply disagree with. And finally, when we receive Jesus' love for us, we remember that what we do in this world The way we love, the way we live, the way we show up, it matters forever. Jesus invites us to join his kingdom work now. And we're able to catch glimpses of the kingdom breaking through. And we know that this will last forever when Jesus returns. Greatness in the kingdom of God is about service and compassion. And this is the greatness that we're invited into. Amen. So what does that mean for us today? Well, as I mentioned before, there's nothing wrong with recognition, success, or achieving greatness. I know some of your stories, you are doing amazing things. This could be in the financial sector. This could be with technology, with medicine, or you're writing beautiful music. I know that some of you are stewarding incredible influence in classrooms and waiting rooms and boardrooms. You're leading in your home. You are leading with your friends. You're leading with your kids. You are organizing whole businesses that are meant to feed kids that need food and build houses. You are stewarding your platform online to just advocate for those who often go unnoticed or unheard of. And I believe that God looks at all these things and delights in us. She's like, wow, my children are using the gifts I've given them and they are living with excellence. They are walking with their all in these areas. But whether the things we do are displayed for all to see or whether it's just between God and us, we are empowered by the Spirit to always ask Jesus, where is your kingdom breaking in? And how can I serve those around me? How can I walk with compassion? We're empowered to not get caught in the default of chasing status, chasing approval and anchoring our worth to that. But we're empowered to anchor our worth to Jesus' love and his heart. That is always looking out for our good and the good of our neighbor. Now last week, Pastor Steph ended with the application of seek, ask, and join. And as we end our time, I believe that's our application this morning as well. First, when it comes to the kingdom, we're invited to seek first the kingdom. Instead of worrying about our life or our standing or our status, which Jesus says we often have the propensity to do. Jesus invites the disciples and us to seek first the kingdom. Seek first, that means with the best of our time, the best of our energy, we're looking for where the kingdom is breaking in. And what does that look like? What does it mean for the kingdom to break in? Well, look for compassion. Look for hope. Look for love. Look for peace. Look for joy. These are moments where the kingdom of God is breaking in. So the first thing we're invited to do this week is to seek first the kingdom. But then when we see the kingdom breaking in, we're then empowered to ask. And this week, I'd invite us to ask two questions. First, Jesus, is there someone you're inviting me to show compassion to? Or to look on them through a lens of compassion? And then second, is there a way you're inviting me to serve those around me? To use the position, the privilege, the position that I'm in to actually serve those and meet the needs of those around me. We get to ask Jesus, what are you inviting me to do? We get to ask the Spirit for wisdom. What does it look like to join the kingdom of God? And then finally, we seek, we ask, but would we be people that don't stop at asking questions, but we actually join in? Joining in and serving could look like shoveling a neighbor's driveway. It could be deciding to invite a friend who you know is struggling to fit in to join you in your friend group as you hang out. It could be calling an aging parent or grandparent who you know is lonely. It could be advocating for a coworker or someone who works on your team who you know has gone unnoticed and saying, hey, I'm going to serve you by advocating for you. Now, service and compassion is a muscle that I know I need to build. It doesn't come naturally because often I just want to think about myself. And when I stepped into leadership at Mill City, one of the things a mentor encouraged me to do was to have a practice of serving in a place where no one knew who I was. Have a practice doing something where I'm not gaining recognition from doing that task. And what I've found throughout the years is this has led me to places where I have encountered the vulnerable, the marginalized, the forgotten, the lonely, the people that Jesus would call the children of society. So where is the Spirit inviting you to join in, to serve, to walk with compassion? This week, what would it look like to seek and ask and join. Now, as we end, I wanted to end with a quote from Dr. King. Now, tomorrow is a day that we honor the legacy and life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And he was far from a perfect leader, but his life was defined by service and compassion. I mean, he had the platform, he had all the recognition, but he didn't bask in the status. Instead, he chose to serve. And he chose to join the kingdom of God that was breaking in. He chose to walk alongside others. He chose to sit alongside others. He chose to preach alongside others, and this led him to get beaten alongside others and go to prison alongside others and eventually give his life alongside others. Now, before Dr. King passed away, he was speaking on greatness, and he said this, and I I love this quote. He said, everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve you only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. All you need is a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Mill City, as we go into this week, this grace is available to us through Jesus. And so would his love propel us to seek our neighbor's good and to bring glory to God in the way that we join him at work in our everyday spaces. Amen. Amen. Would you join me? Let's pray as we end our time. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you that you are a God who gave us such a tangible example of service and compassion. We thank you that you're a God who left everything and stepped down into this world because you love us. And so, Jesus, would your love propel us to be vessels of your hope, of your peace, of your joy, and of your mercy? Jesus, as we worship together, I pray that you even bring people to mind who are the people in our everyday spaces who you're inviting us to serve. Where are the areas of our lives that we need to lay our chase for status down at your feet, knowing that our worth is in you. That you delight in us as we pursue those things. But Jesus, you are empowering us to love the people that are with us in those spaces. So Jesus, we would pray that you would guide our time this morning. Thank you that you're God who speaks to us, that you're God who guides us. We give you these next few moments. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you worship with us?